0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 27th of October, 2023, on Monocle Radio.
1: Nigeria's Supreme Court permits the new president to get on with the job. The nations of the Arctic figure out how to adjust around Russia. And can a radio station be a work of art? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Anu Adoye and Emma Searle will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have a report on a new project from the team behind Global Breakfast Radio. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. First of all, on today's show, Nigeria's President Bola Tanubu can resume whatever redecoration plans for the Aso Rock Villa in Abuja he may have had on pause. Nigeria's Supreme Court has unanimously slung out two challenges to President Tanubu's victory in February's presidential election. The cases were brought by the runners-up to Tanubu in that election, Atiku Abubakar and Peter Obi. Well, I'm joined in the studio with more on this by Anu Aduye, a West Africa correspondent for the Financial Times. Um, Anu, nice to have you here in person. Uh, First of all, to these cases which the Supreme Court has thrown out, did anyone really think they
2: were going anywhere? No, I don't think so. And thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here in the studio. Um, You you know, I think the opposition candidates were up against history uh, in the history of the Nigerian presidential election. No court has ever overturned the presidential election. So, you know, it was, apart from the most optimistic of the of the supporters, I don't think anyone actually expected uh, the elections to be overturned.
1: Well, was there any solid base to their case, or was this just defeated people trying their luck, thinking it was worth a try?
2: You know, I think if you look at the way the elections were carried out, before the elections, the Electoral Commission said they were going to transmit the results electronically from the polling uh, stations uh, and up to the cloud immediately. That did not happen. The Electoral Commission said they had, you know, some internet connectivity problems. Uh, people who are more conspiracy-minded uh, would say something more nefarious was <laughs> at play. Um, so I think because of that, um, the the opposition quite, you know, said we, we're going to go to court, which, you know, is, a, is an improvement on, previous elections when we've seen, uh, you know, more violence. But I think um, uh, it was always a long shot for this uh, to, to be overturned. Nevertheless, this is
1: nine months of uncertainty which has uh, shrouded uh, Tanubu's presidency. Has that been inhibiting for him? Has it stopped him from doing as much as he might have liked to have done?
2: I think if you ask, you know, East camp, they would say they, they they weren't worried about it, that it's, you know, it's always, uh, they've always believed that they won uh, fairly. But I think, you know, deep down speaking to them on background, there's been a little bit of concern about maybe uh, this might turn out into something. But I think now that they have the, the, the court case has been, you know, they've won the court victory. They can now go back fully to the hard work of, of governing, which is a lot. There's a lot of challenges that Nigeria actually faces, and this is, you know, time for them to actually get to work. Well, indeed so.
1: If you if you consider the contents of President Nubu's entry, it would be very difficult to know where to start. He, he has just convened the Nigerian Economic Summit, um, and is that reflective of what his main priority is, i.e. Nigeria's economy, the currency now at record lows against almost everything else?
2: Absolutely. the The economy, you know, it's the economy stupid, you know the, <laughs> the old catchphrase. Um it's 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 a major concern. The statistics make for really, you know, awful reading inflation is at, you know, almost uh twenty seven percent. Um, you know, uh the the Naira, the local currency, as you said, has slid to record lows against the US dollar, which is is gone past the one thousand Naira mark, which is Psychological for lots mm. of people in Nigeria, the unemployment is something to worry about. So you know the entry is filled with economic concerns, and that is where the you know the the president's main agenda has to focus on.
1: How likely does it look that he, his agenda will actually get to grips with this? Because history, and certainly not just Africa's history, is uh, rife with people who inherit an economy which is already struggling, uh, have some brilliant idea that will solve everything instantly, and Almost without exception, makes everything even
2: worse. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at uh, President Tinubu, is in everything as you say, a, a really an economy that's in bad shape from someone who was a member of his party. So, you know, <laughs> it's the same political party they supported the previous president he, president. he can't
1: even do the thing of saying this is the mess the other mob left.
2: <laughs> you know, they've they've tried to before the elections. They they had to play this really uh, tricky game of slightly condemning the economic policies of the incumbent while also <laughs> knowing that they need his support in the north uh, where he is very popular. So, you know, they've in, inherited a, a really uh, bad situation. They, you know, with all the will in the world, the problems that Nigeria faces right now are really structural. You know, there's. They've, t- to his credit, he has removed the fuel subsidy that everyone was clamoring for him to remove. But when you remove that, you know, it means that Oil prices go up, food prices go up, transport costs go up. And people, you know, there's loads of surveys showing that people are experiencing economic turmoil right now. And they have to, you know, tell people that we're all in this together. Uh, that hasn't always been the case. Right now, the, the president's cabinet is the largest in the history of, uh, you know, of a Nigerian president, which has made people question if we're really in this together. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really tough for people economically, and the president's agenda has to focus squarely on getting the economy back to, you know, something that resembles a, a working economy for Nigerians.
1: But the thing is, with structural reforms of the sort, which you, you say Nigeria needs, they're never done quickly. It's not possible to do them quickly, at least if you want to do them right. And how patient are Nigerians likely to be? How understanding are they of that? Because this is a countries I'm sure Nigerians well know, uh, has no particularly good reason uh, to be poor or chaotic or corrupted. It has, you know, it is lavishly blessed uh, with human and natural resources.
2: You know, it's it's kind of a two-pronged answer. Nigerians are one of the most patient people in the world, but you know Nigerians <laughs> are also not very patient in the sense that because he won the elections with such slim margins, this is the smallest margin anyone has won, uh, since Nigeria returned to democracy in 1999, that means you know he won with only 33 percent of the votes. You know that already means that 60, you know, 64 percent of the sorry, my math might be failing. Today, <laughs> but it shows you that two thirds of the of the population are you know did not vote for him. You know, and that means that people are already on his back asking for you know this is not what we didn't vote for this obviously, um, and his supporters as well are also having to not only defend their votes, but they themselves are also feeling the economic pinch. So, you know, he finds himself in this really tough position of having to quickly, uh, you know, justify why, you know, he, he, he based this campaign on being a brilliant economic mind and on being able to find a team capable of, you know, solving Nigeria's problems. But as you say, they're really structural, which means that they're going to take time and does he really have that time on his side.
1: Uh, he also faces a headache, as do many national leaders around the world, uh, due to a situation which is not really anything at all to do with them, which is the war between Israel and Hamas. And that conflict, the broader Israel-Palestine conflict, has a unique ability uh, to inflame tensions uh, way, way beyond its own borders. and it, And it has a resonance in Nigeria
2: as well, doesn't it? It does, you know. As almost everyone knows, is you know Nigeria is split almost equally between Christians and Muslims. Um, both of you know Nigerians are one of the most widely travelled in terms of pilgrimage to mm. the Middle East. So you know Nigerians, Nigerian Christians often go. To Jerusalem, you know, this this the holy sites in Israel. So there's some affinity there. And then you have Muslim groups that have, you know, organized rallies in favor of the Palestinian cause. Um, they are calling for the Nigerian government to. Order of all diplomatic ties with the state of Israel until there's a path to a two-state um, resolution, we haven't seen you know any appetite for that on the part of the Nigerian government. the The foreign ministry statement uh, a few weeks ago was a little cagey, saying that we're you know we're calling for de-escalation and a ceasefire. So you know there's there's this imbecile Tension, you know, within the country being so evenly split, um, so it, it has the likelihood to to, and th- there's actually been there's a very peaceful protest last week mm-hmm. um, in Lagos in, in favour of the, of the Palestinian people.
1: Just finally on that, is, is this the kind of thing that could become a serious issue within Nigerian politics in much the same way that it is going to be interesting to see here in the UK whether the opposition Labour Party can hold itself together over this because opinions in that party in particular are split?
2: Yeah, you know that's the that's kind of one of the I think the problems of being a big tent. There's mm. loads of people that you have to you know respect and also cater for. So this will test the abilities of you know Nigeria's finest uh, policymakers and, and and statesmen and women. Although I don't think there's a lot of women at the top of the decision making process in Nigeria as present. But you know I think it's it's going to test. Nigeria's, you know, the, the the people in the foreign ministry, and I think just broadening it out, you know, the my final point is this is also a problem that the African countries are starting to look at and trying to see how they can make their voices. heard you know, South Africa has always been, for example, a very vocal supporter mm-hmm. of the Palestinians. So you know, it's it's a very difficult issue. It's it's a it's it's a minefield, and I think everyone is still kind of foundering around in the dark, trying to make sense of how they can go about this uh, in a good way. Anu Arieh, thank you very much for joining us.
1: You are listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio with me, Andrew Muller, and I am joined now by Monocle's senior producer, Emma Soul who listeners to The Foreign Desk hear a lot of the work of without actually usually hearing her, because that is a show that she helps produce. We, we went to Reykjavik to make a show of it there.
3: We did. Hello. Uh,
1: it, was, it was quite strange. I, I did want to ask first, uh, once we had recovered from the landing at Keflavik Airport, which was let's try each wheel individually before we put them all down kind of thing, <laughs> um, what did you actually make of the place?
3: I I had a fabulous time. I always loved traveling with you and Christy, and that landing was something else. I haven't had a landing like that in a long time. I think, honestly, my first impression of the place was, wow, Reykjavik is windy. (laughs) But uh, after that, I think the biggest image that I took away from that amazing trip was the stunning venue of the conference itself. Mm -hmm. Um, We we went to the Arctic Circle Assembly, which is the biggest kind of Arctic gathering where prime ministers, leaders and ministers uh, descend on Reykjavik to talk about the top issues facing the region and the venue itself was beautiful. It was like a a building with fractured glass right on the water. gives you sort of James Bond feelings Um, and I just really love it. We've had the privilege of of going to a few security conferences like the NATO Summit Mm. in Vilnius, the Munich Security Conference and I really like it when the host city leans in and capitalizes on that opportunity to, to push the image and brand of their city and I thought... Reykjavik did that beautifully and I know Andrew you're not a fan of jazz, but they had <laughs> they did have a lovely Icelandic jazz band playing in the in the conference venue. They Atrium. did. That
1: that was the moment at <laughs> which you and Christy had to work very hard to persuade me not to just pack up and go home. We
3: did. And and they were they were Wonderful, and also, wouldn't you agree? The food this at this conference was outstanding. The food, what
1: well. the food was very good, and we have become quite the connoisseurs of conference food. But yeah, they they did exactly that thing that you're mentioning. They thought, well, how can we make a favourable impression of Iceland here? And so it was. Yeah, every day for lunch, it was fresh Icelandic cod or fresh Icelandic lamb uh, or the vegetarian equivalents, and it, it it was all astonishingly good. It also struck me as a lot. Uh, more relaxed and a lot less frenetic and generally a lot less frenzied than most of these things that we've been to.
3: That's so true. And a lot of the the interviewees we we spoke to remarked on that. Unlike you know the NATO summit, for example, where it's very rigid mm-hmm. and actually getting hold of someone to speak to is a is a struggle for producers like me. But at this this kind of conference, you've got students and PhD students and experts on the same stage as senators and leaders, and that's quite refreshing. Well,
1: as listeners to The Foreign Desk, and indeed a lot of our other shows will shortly be aware, we didn't have much trouble getting people to speak to us. And among the people we did speak to was the former senior US diplomat in charge of polar affairs, Evan Bloom. We asked him about the United States' interests in the Arctic. I began by asking him about how well the wider political culture around the region is adapting to the fact that, for obvious reasons, no one is really talking to Russia anymore. Russia takes up,
4: you know, more or less half the Arctic. So when you talk about pan-Arctic policies, Russia really has to be part of that. At the same time, the Russians have basically excluded themselves from discourse with other countries by their behavior in Ukraine. So that has an impact on the relations in the Arctic. And it's caused the states other than Russia to, to work more closely together. Uh, not just in terms of security, but in terms of trying to cooperate on on Arctic issues. That has been one of the, the effects.
1: But on, on security in particular, do you get the sense that those non-Russia Arctic countries are now having to think about security in a way that they weren't having to think about it two years ago? Do they need to start thinking about Russia as a quite meaningful potential adversary in the Arctic?
4: Well, with Finland having joined NATO and Sweden moving in, in that direction... There is something of a new dynamic and a new, perhaps, focus and sense of purpose about dealing with security issues in the Arctic. At the same time, I don't think that conflict in the Arctic, per se, is, is likely. And uh, I think it's just a need to be a bit more cautious and focused, especially with Finland. and its mm. bo- Now, border, NATO border with, with uh, Russia is, is much increased. But it doesn't mean that there is going to be some sort of conflict in the Arctic. It just has to be watched.
1: I mean, almost by default, do you see the, the United States taking a bigger role in the Arctic than it was? I mean, obviously, the United States is perfectly entitled to be regarded as an Arctic nation, given Alaska. But is a bigger role now necessary for the U.S.? I think that the
4: seriousness of purpose of, of the U.S. with respect to the Arctic has been growing for a long time over the past 15 or 20 years mm. in particular. So I don't think it's it's simply a question of there is increased tension with Russia and therefore there's more attention to the Arctic. I think that's one element, but I don't think it's the most important element. I think that with the uh, understanding of the importance of climate change, mm. with the opening up of new economic possibilities, there are all sorts of changes in the Arctic that are causing... Arctic states and non-Arctic states to be more focused on the economic possibilities, the uh, security possibilities, the political relations, all of that.
1: That was Evan Bloom, a former senior U.S. diplomat in charge of polar affairs. We also caught up with Senator Lisa Murkowski, the Republican representative for the state of Alaska, to talk about Vladimir Putin's Arctic ambitions and the reality that Alaska finds itself on the front line.
5: We've worked so hard to ensure that the Arctic is this zone of peace. But when a place is quiet, nobody pays any attention to it and nobody gets any resources to it.
1: And then everybody pays attention when it's
4: not and quiet. Then when and then there's a problem when
5: there's a hot spot now. So now there's more attention. Uh, you'll probably recall that it wasn't too many months ago when uh, the Chinese balloon was moving its way across Alaska and then over Canada and then into the United States, and everyone in the <laughs> world was watching it, and and it really kind of put Alaska on the map for many people in the country who said, wow, I didn't really think about Alaska as being the front lines of defense here, and was like, well, are you not looking at a map? So we've got to look at the world a little bit differently. And the Arctic holds a very, very significant place in that map.
1: Senator Mikowski was, for obvious reasons, Emma, quite long on the necessity of reorganising relationships around the Arctic. That turned out to be, well, perhaps unsurprisingly, quite the big theme, didn't it? It,
3: it definitely was. It was probably the biggest theme of the conference and the mood this year. Many of the interviewees we had on on the show have have explained that this mood is very different from previous years because the dynamics in the Arctic have changed significantly because of the war in Ukraine and that this old notion of Arctic exceptionalism this old idea that that the arctic is this unique place of relative peace stability cooperation that is changing dynamics are getting frostier hey. now that <laughs> now that finland has joined nato and sweden presumably will too which would make russia the only arctic nation that isn't a member of nato ties between China and Russia are are getting closer, especially regarding Arctic cooperation, which Senator Mikalski is concerned about. Uh, The Arctic Council is no longer cooperating with Moscow, which has had terrible repercussions, we learned at the Conference for Scientific Mm. Cooperation, which is quite worrying. And yes, so it was very interesting speaking to Senator Mikalski, and she actually said something quite powerful. I think she said that Vladimir Putin has one hand on Ukraine and the other on the Arctic, and that if we, in her view, the West want the Arctic region to remain stable, countries do need to start thinking about increasing military preparedness. Uh,
1: There was another recurring theme which I think did surprise us, which was obviously there was a lot of discussion about the Arctic environment and the effect on it that climate change was having. But there was a a quite bracing amount of irritation, I thought, expressed by people who actually live there at the idea that, well, as one of them put it, that the Arctic should be encased in this snow globe uh, and that nothing should ever be done to develop or exploit it.
3: That's exactly it. And I think we have a clip now of Mads Friedrichsen, the executive director of the Arctic Economic Council.
6: So for many years, the Arctic has been the poster boy for polar bears and climate change and so yeah, on. Yeah, the, 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 the
1: lonely polar bear on the ice floe.
6: Exactly. We've, we have all seen that for people that don't live in the Arctic, people that never traveled inside the Arctic. But if you go inside the Arctic, what you see there is you see houses, you see, you know, cars and normal, like, normal societies. We don't have an interest in destroying our own environment because this is our home. I always say the Arctic region has got three things that the rest of the world needs. So if you live somewhere in London or in Paris or in Berlin, what you really need is you need food, for example we got seafood that is certified sustainable a lot more sustainable than any food you can get elsewhere Mm. that's an industry you know, should that be regulated differently? We got green energy. We, Norway, where I live, 100% green energy. I had negative electricity prices because we have too much green energy. It's hard to see why we should be regulated differently. We are more green. We are more sustainable. And the reason why I list all of this is to say there's a lot of nuances. Mm. You know, so there's a lot of misunderstanding of what is the Arctic and what does Arctic development means? Arctic development doesn't mean ruin the, the society or the nature. Once upon a time, London, Paris, Berlin were also just beautiful nature. True. Someone decided to build houses there. You know, like, I don't see why we should be treated any differently.
1: That was Mads Fredrickson, the executive director of the Arctic Economic Council. Uh, And you can hear more from him and indeed quite a lot more from the Arctic Assembly on the Foreign Desk on Saturday. But Emma, before you go, we do have to, I I guess, reveal our shame, the embarrassment, the the absolute
3: low light uh, of the trip for the Foreign Desk. There was a quiz. There was. Mm. And we did abysmally. And you are clearly not over it. Uh, no, I'm
1: I'm really not. I mean, we, we did... In, <laughs> it, it was quite complicated, I should explain. It wasn't the traditional pub quiz format where as somebody reads out some questions and you have to write down the answers. There was a thing with an app and a QR code and a screen. And, and it was multiple choice, which does always kind of annoy me, but it it did not go well for us. Did you actually record or write down where we actually finished?
3: I can't remember. It was something like there were 39 entrants and we were 31 or something, but this was a blow for you because listeners may or may not know that you, Andrew, are a seasoned pub quiz participant, very used to going home with bags of silverware. So this was a blow, but you know what, Andrew, it's okay because you're Australian, (laughs) I'm from Cape Town, (laughs) Christy, my co-producer, is from the UK. So how will we Supposed to know, for example, one of the questions was which city in the Arctic is known as the Paris of the Arctic? How are we supposed to know that that is apparently Tromso? For as the as the mayor of Tromso told us, and we will be playing this interview next week on The Globalist, he explained to us that female residents of Tromso are particularly stylish and very fashionable, and that that is the reason that Tromso is known as the Paris of the Arctic. But we weren't expected to know that, and it's, it's okay, Andrew.
1: Well, <laughs> I, I would, however, like to state for the record that one question we did get right, which a lot of people didn't, was the question of how many people in Iceland actually live within the Arctic Circle. And it is about 80, and I know that that because I've been to Grimsey Island off the north coast of Iceland, which is where those people actually live. So it it wasn't a total disaster. And you say 31st, (laughs) and not that this has been keeping me awake nights. We were at 1.31st. I think we picked up a little better later on and finished somewhere in the mid-20s. But the thing that annoyed me (laughs) most about the... Some of the multiple choice questions especially was that they really just should have been a who cares option.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. And Christy, my co-producer, is not here to defend herself but there were a few app glitches so the, we the, lost a couple obvious there ones. There were some technical errors but, yeah. and,
1: and I, I had issues with the wording of one or two of them as well but you know, we've we've only got so many minutes left in this program. Emma uh, Searle, thank you for joining us, and of course, a reminder that a complete episode of the Foreign Desk tomorrow at midday UK time will have much more from the Arctic Circle Assembly. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. The writer and editor Seb Emina and the artist and composer Daniel Jones have long been fascinated by radio. A few years back, they launched a streaming service called Global Breakfast Radio, which transports you to a radio station wherever in the world the sun is rising, creating an audio mosaic of other people's mornings. You might catch a heated debate in Santa Lucia, a weather report in Finland, or perhaps all the current country hits in the United States. They've now collaborated again on a new project called Five Radio Stations. This seeks to answer the question, if it's easier than ever to create a radio station, how might an artist exploit that? As the title suggests, five artists have been commissioned to create radio stations around the globe, all broadcasting online. One of them was created by Seb and Daniel and reports on daily goings-on around the planet, but not quite in the way that we're used to. The duo tell us more about their streaming art project, and why radio is such an important platform.
0: Five radio stations. It's a, it's a project that was commissioned by a French art fund, which is called Labelle or Laboratoire Artistique. Working with the artistic director, Sylvia Guerra, I co-curated a series of artworks, which are also radio stations. So, you go onto the website fiveradiostations.com, and when you click play on any of them, you will hear the same thing that everyone else who is listening will hear. They are streamed as live. Community interviews. So there are five artists involved. Our officers have been interviewing a New York based artist named Karen Sita to gather any information that may assist in understanding the circumstances surrounding the
3: disappearance.
0: An Icelandic. Musician artist named Benedikt Hermansen. There's a piece by a duo named Heiler Desires.
5: Its torso tremors, it shakes shock.
0: A well known Nigerian artist based in Berlin named Emeke Altberg. <laughs> And then the fifth station is a creation by uh, Daniel, who's here, and myself, and it's called Infraordinary FM. You're listening to Infraordinary FM, the global information service, broadcasting online 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
7: So Infraordinary FM delivers real-time information about commonplace everyday happenings from around the world. For example, a bird has been sighted in Ullumbator or in Namibia, it is now noon or somebody got a new high score on the 007 pinball machine in the Panther Lounge in Pennsylvania, say. So kind of shy of everyday life the kind of things that maybe would potentially go unreported or even unobserved you know as we go about our day-to-day lives so it's all pulled from real-time information taken from a wealth of different sources
5: in the city of kampala in uganda the locksmith JK's auto uganda ltd will be closing in one hour
7: And the radio station is reported by a pair of -of state-of-the-art synthetic voices, whose names are Thomas and Nicole, um, very kindly provided to us by Eleven Labs, um, an amazing generative AI company who create these uncannily, lifelike, human-like voices.
5: The International Space Station is currently above Jamestown, St. Helena.
0: Often we only hear about other places, through the prism of news, which by definition only tells us about things that are unusual about those places, rather than things that are usual, especially places we see as quote unquote, kind of troubled countries or troubled parts of the world. And it can be actually quite refreshing to hear that such and such a restaurant in Beirut, Lebanon is now serving breakfast. I mean, that's actually, it's a really important thing to remember, I think. I'm really fascinated by websites like Radio Garden, where you can click a little button and listen to real local radio from Alaska or from Sierra Leone or from Iceland or whatever, and how your experience of of listening to that radio station is changed by your knowledge of, of where it's for in the first place. So if I hear Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi, and I know it's going out in Alaska, and then I hear it again and I know it's going out in Peru. I don't know, somehow I'm hearing the same song, but because of the kind of imaginative context for that, it sounds a bit different to me.
7: It's all about this shared understanding of the world, you know, by being able to hear the perspective of other people in very different contexts or to hear about the micro events that they're experiencing it just puts us into their shoes, allows us to empathise and hopefully is maybe supports this kind of fabric of shared understanding.
0: I think those kinds of things are what really interests me about calling something a radio station and asking artists to do something specifically for that reason and why it's different to just kind of discrete chunks of audio content. This idea that when you press play, and when you listen, you don't know who else is listening, but you know that they are out there. I can never quite shake off that magic and, and the feeling that there's something behind it that's quite
1: important.
5: In Saipan, northern Mariana Islands, it is a new day.
1: And thanks to Holly Fisher for that interview. You can listen to the whole project at 5radiostations.com. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Anu Adoye and Emma Searle. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily will be back at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.